If you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it, and maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible, so thank you. Today I am joined by so uh, so uh, Chernaya Koshka. I think it means black cat in Russian. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome. Welcome. This is um, a uh, Twitter poster. A um, an uh, just an, a, a gray eminence of a certain section of the so-called dissident right, and uh, a very uh, learned man. Welcome. Welcome to the show. How's it going, Alex? It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, yeah, I think that's basically all you can say about me, right? I'm an anonymous Twitter poster, and you I are. seem to have gone pretty yeah. far just in that vein. So that's that's not, to be honest, it's not a bad thing to be. It's quite a an important thing to be if you're on this podcast. It's kind of my aim to uh, to speak to uh, um, very interesting, um, yeah, just characters that uh, that reside in our in our space and um have something to say and i do think you have something to say um i really like um your perspective on things and um yeah that's why i wanted to have you on uh i mean there's there are many directions this could go into um you know you don't have a book to shill you don't have a um some 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 term that you've coined maybe there are terms you've coined i'm not aware of them but you know usually there's some overarching thing that people want to to you know, elaborate on in this podcast, but um, I just wanted to ask you because your you know your platform is Twitter, and um, this is a strange time for Twitter. I mean, why why personally are you on Twitter? What does it give you? Well, what Twitter does for me is, I think, what it does for a lot of people, especially young men that find themselves uh, in this sort of political milieu, is there's a real sense of community, right? And there's a real intriguing sense of knowledge to be found, uh, esoteric and otherwise, right? Like when I first got into Twitter, at least the sphere of Twitter, it was around 2016, just before it, uh, when Trump uh, announced his campaign. And, you know, I had political views that were pretty unorthodox. And I had sort of evolved past a naive libertarian perspective that was really more of just what I found to be the closest thing to what I believed that was acceptable in the mainstream, that was acceptable to sort of identify as. But that was never really how I felt. Like there were ideas about tradition, there were ideas about you know nationalism and things of that nature that just didn't seem there was a space for me to find any sort of community or even advocate. And lo and behold, Twitter happens with you know the Trump campaign. And this great energy that gets swept up with MAGA and America First and all of that. So I found a lot of very interesting characters that were saying things that I'd always believed, that I always had an instinct towards. And I started following them. Characters like Bap, primarily Loki, Julianus, uh, Manaquanon 4, and, and many other Twitter accounts that sort of carved out this space for people such as myself and many others to have a discussion and to be to speak freely and not be censored and, and to actually uh, 
relate to one another and, and talk to one another. So that's why I fell in love with Twitter in the first place. And I've, I've really just stayed on it for that primarily. Like you said, I don't have any books to show. I'm not, I don't have any podcasts or anything like that. I'm really here just to discuss ideas, to talk to like-minded individuals and to sort of see what can be done for people who have our beliefs, who, who have similar viewpoints uh, moving forward in this crazy world we live in. Yeah, that's. I think that's a very similar path to a lot of people that I know that I speak to, and myself included. I mean, for me, it was the uh, the uh, verbal stylings of uh, of Zero HP who <laughs> attracted me to the platform. And yeah, yeah I, also uh, a dear friend. Yeah, yeah, he's he's wonderful. It's like I remember he had these these. I mean, a lot of women listening to this will probably say I'm nuts, but you know, he had these threads on on female nature, and I was like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what's so funny I mean, about the characters true. in the space is <laughs> the the truth you can find here, right? And on so many different topics, but you know, really like the fundamental philosophy and the understanding of nature, things like that. Uh, you, you're not getting that anywhere else, and that's what you know attracts me, attracts so many others, and and keeps people you know in this thing of ours. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's just um, you know, it's it's. It's very um it's very it's very beautiful in the sense that there's a because this is fringe art or fringe you know fringe beliefs there's kind of a, a pressure system here that doesn't really exist in in other spaces. I feel like there are actual pieces of of you know even just bits of tweets or you know even essays that spun out of the space that um have had so much evolutionary like iterations and, and pressures mm-hmm. applied to them that they just look like a completely different species of output than whatever you find anywhere else just because it's such a dark place. You know, it's kind of like those cave dwelling, whatever, <laughs> you know, newts that are yeah. so different from every other species of thought that you find outside of the cave that they're, they're just absolutely fascinating. Um, so it's... Um, yeah, it's, uh, I definitely recommend the space. That's why I also have this podcast. But it's, 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 yeah, it's a continuously fascinating. There's more and more people coming into this space. Some better than others, obviously, because everything evolves in different directions. Um, but there are also all sorts of um, interesting schisms um, because you know this thing of ours has different subgroups and different people believing different things. I mean, I feel like now. There's a, an, an interesting split between um, kind of the religious faction and mm-hmm. people who think that uh, race is should take precedence above everything else, and religion is either um, unimportant or an, a negative in this. I mean, do you have any kind of dog in this fight? Do you have any opinion on um, you know what who who should win? <laughs> I, I certainly I've gotten involved in these debates. Uh, I, a few of my tweets have have gotten pretty big uh, when I've sp- spoken on these matters. Now, if I in terms of like spheres spheres that I identify with, like I'm I'm OG Frog Twitter. I've been Frog Twitter, you know, from the beginning, uh, and the sort of clique that's formed around BAP and his views. And what I think is interesting about this sphere before we actually get into that debate itself is that there. The, the nature of posting anonymously means people have to sort of 
make make their chops off of the merit of their own content and their own beliefs and their own writing and, and knowledge. So it really does sort of act as a crucible, particularly also with the extra layer of censorship that we face. People are getting banned all the time. So you're not able to just sort of build this audience and maintain this audience that easily. People get banned and they have to start from scratch. And the people that stick with them that automatically follow from the beginning are people that they've like genuinely persuaded and genuinely impressed. So it allows for, I think, a much higher level of discourse and discussion that in more traditional or mainstream spaces isn't allowed because there's so much of an ego to it. There's so much of a, you know, a pressure of being afraid to speak your mind clearly, being able to assert your views and defend them when you have all these other social pressures. The, the beauty of posting anonymously is that all those things are stripped away and you can just discuss the ideas you know, as they exist. As far as matters of faith are concerned in the dissident right, uh, I, I'm a troll at heart, right? So naturally, like I like to be inflammatory with my tweets. I, I like to see people get mad because I think it helps. One, it's funny. And two, I do think it actually helps spark certain discussions. Uh, so a lot of times things that I might tweet, I, I sort of amplify the point that I'm making for you know dramatic effect. It's, it's not necessarily that my the points aren't genuine. They are genuine. These, these are the things I believe, but I do sort of dial it up. Uh, I had a very good discussion with Gio on exactly this topic in the matters of how religion is going to play a factor in the dissident right. And I think it kind of goes back to what you were saying earlier is that there's so many different spheres, there's so many different little cliques and strains of thought that exist in this broader tent that I don't think it's good for there to be a single idea that wins out. Because I think there's a lot of points that each clique brings forward that are worth analyzing and sort of internalizing across the board. Uh, my problem, particularly when it came to certain people who were very adamantly religious, particularly Christian, uh, like I was raised Christian, like I've got no problem with, with Christianity in and of itself, but it's people that think that that's sort of a end-all, be-all political solution. And I just don't think that's uh, accurate. And I think that's been tried before, too, like uh, particularly in like the, the 70s and the 80s with the religious right. Uh, the evangelicals in America and, and their sort of attempts to make you know, Christianity into this political force, I think not only is that not effective politically, but I also think that's a little disingenuous in terms of theology. Like Obviously, Christianity is so much bigger than just politics. It's a, it's a belief system. It's a matter of faith. And that's going to obviously inform people's political views, but to use it as a tool for you know, cynical political gain I think is uh, both ineffective for politics and I think it's disingenuous for theology. Now, my, myself, I would consider myself a, a Nietzschean if I had to give my, a, a philosophy uh, that sort of underpins the things that I believe in the way that I view the world. Uh, I certainly have no problem with Christianity. I certainly, it's going to play a big role moving forward for different nationalist movements, different uh, components of the dissident right. And that, that's good. Like tradition obviously is very important. And I think uh, you shouldn't sort of have, there's, there's a lot of people that take it too far. I think they, they are, are very dismissive. They think Christianity or, or any religion in general has no place 
in uh, dissident politics because there's a lot of things that you could argue are problems in this world that sort of stem out of a uh, a Christian perspective, uh, a, a sense of universalism or, or egalitarianism, this idea that all men are equal before God can be taken to an extreme politically and, and socially that I don't think it's true of Christianity in general. Like, there's been plenty of you know very uh, stout nationalist Christians who are both uh, eagerly nationalist and eagerly Christian. But certainly, you can look on the flip side and see that in many cases the left has used Christianity as a mechanism or a vehicle to spread like Marxist ideology in terms of egalitarianism and this great leveling. And I think that's not without you know reason i think there are there are things that can be used with christianity uh, maybe maliciously or maybe even with the best of intentions to push certain political and social ideas that are detrimental to the health of the nation so that's in a nutshell i think that's sort of where my issues with people that view Christianity as like the singular most important factor of, of dissident right politics is that it's it's not actually all the answers rolled up into one. Yeah. I I also am slowly coming to that conclusion in the sense that I I, I thought a little bit about, you know, the the appeal of something like integralism, just in the sense of, okay, you have an external moral framework. It's it's inerrant. It's based in some um Know, external observer and then just by anchoring into something uh you you know essentially can build a a more solid structure around it um i don't think that's possible i don't think necessarily religion is something that translate into translates into politics in any good way um you know you you won't have good politics and you won't have good religion if you if you marry the two and it, you know it should be I think for for people in our sphere and in, in general it should be a, a matter of personal commitments um and nothing that you know that that flows into politics because it does ignore a lot of very important um elements like for example immigration like under another you know a Christian system you know you just come in you say the appropriate words and you you make the appropriate uh, commitments you know mm-hmm honestly or dishonestly, and then politically even, um, you become a sort of de facto citizen of the of the new system. There's no re- reason to exclude anyone or to have any sort of um, ranking or hierarchy or preference system if the, the baseline is, okay, do you accept, you know, um, the Lord, X sure. or Y, depending on what your religious system is. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's, that's a, a really big blind spot. Yeah, I think... What's also curious too is if you look at like certain organizations that have been like the, the loudest proponents of immigration, particularly in America, like more often than not, they're like Christian charities. And I can empathize with the idea of like, you know, helping, you know, the meek and the poor, but at the expense of what, right? Like the expense of the nation, the health of the nation and the good of, you know, the general population, you know, our people, so to speak, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a sort of suicidal altruism. And I think above all else, you have to sort of look out for your own before you start worrying about uh, matters of 
know, charity and alms and that sort of thing. And yeah, you know, ex exactly what you said. It, it doesn't have all the answers. And particularly when it comes to matters of like race and, and the composition of a nation and what's best, if you look at it purely from a Christian perspective, you're not going to get best possible solutions. Also, I think to, to add some, I guess to, to play devil's advocate, ironically enough, is that when you look at matters of culture, on the other hand, there's a lot of things that I think Christianity or, or a more traditionalist perspective uh, has a lot of very good answers for. Certainly, if you look at the state of the culture and the state of society, society today, then you know a much more explicitly Christian society would be vastly preferable. You know, it shouldn't have to be a debate where, you know, what is a woman and, and you know, is are these things like okay and, and this total total inversion of morality where like the the weakest and the sickest and and the most deprived are somehow the most moral and, and the people that have the most clout, so to speak, in terms of making arguments, right? Like everyone has to defer to the most oppressed and the most, uh, you know, sort of depraved minority group. Uh, and I think that's, you know, obviously horrific. A lot of people, I think today, especially get into politics because they, they look at how things are and they look at the way that society is, is trending towards. And they think that's instinctively, they know it's wrong. And I think, Christianity has good good retorts to that in terms of how a society should be structured, at least morally. Uh, I don't think it's the only answer. I think there's other ways that you can reach basically the same conclusions. But certainly, you know, if I had to pick between this or a much more explicitly Christian sort of society, without a doubt, not only would the Christian society be more preferable, it would be healthier. So the people that have a religious perspective on the way things should evolve like they they do have good arguments and it depends i guess on the issues that you're looking at hand uh, which is why i think you know you can't just have a one-size-fit-all sort of political or philosophical ideology for this thing of ours there needs to be a synthesis of all these different perspectives that people have in this sphere to create something new that hasn't existed before which is why I wouldn't necessarily consider myself a traditionalist, although I, I hold tradition in high regard, and I think there's a lot of reasons why certain components of tradition uh, have lasted as long as they have and are as effective as they are. But I don't think that's you know the only answer. Like I'm not a Novolian. I think that something new needs to be created. There needs to be a philosophy that emerges out of the sphere, an ideology that emerges out of the sphere that is a synthesis of all these different perspectives and is able to create something new for these unprecedented circumstances we all find ourselves in. And that doesn't exist yet, right? And hopefully, you know, we see that start to be created. And it, I think it is like in, you know, in the replies and the threads and the tweets that you see on Twitter, like there is this progression towards what could be like this new, this new idea, whatever it may be, whatever shape and form it takes. Yeah. Yeah. And I am quite hopeful for, you know, like you said, the philosophy and ideology that's going to come out of this because also in, in this space, people kind of, they poo poo the, the whole concept of ideology, you know, there's no, it's not, it's not organic. 
it's LARPy. It's, you know, it's, you know, people uh, take on these labels and they, you know, they sink themselves into this kind of disembodied, you know, very um, rational forward way of, in, of dealing with the world. But I feel like at this point in time, and just given the context of technology and, you know, the abundance produced by in the, the Industrial Revolution, just, you know, doing the human things on autopilot that are presented in front of you with the incentives that are presented in front of you without the mediating force of something like a disruptive philosophy or something like an ideology that kind of captures these these lost values because they really aren't emergent from around us. You know, I've been talking to people like, oh, you know, women who who don't feel the need to have children shouldn't even reproduce, you know. Within the context that we live in now, 90% of women don't feel the need to have children. You know, sometimes they need to be reminded by some form of narrative, or some form of story of, of values that are lost and that just, like I said, are not emergent from stuff around them. So um, I feel like, you know, I, I myself have been, you know, in a way reminded of things like this just by by reading, by engaging with people, by, you know... And are toying with ideologies and and you know um, having revelations from from stuff like this. If I were to have gone down the path that I was on, I probably wouldn't wouldn't be in the place where I'm. I mean, I'm I'm have a family. I'm you know I'm 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 happy. I have a child. I'm you know stuff like this. It probably wouldn't have happened for me if I if I didn't you know wake up to to some realization at one point. And those were mediated by some some form of ideology. And, you know, people say, oh, you know, this is, this is a total LARP, but <laughs> my current life isn't a LARP. I, you know, I, I do things that are very real and base reality um, mm-hmm. that are great and f- that spin out into other consequences that happen in my real life that are also great. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a strange place we find ourselves in. And uh, I mean, if, if we have to, you know, crawl through the, the gates of, of, and bowels of LARPing to, to get to the other side, you know, whatever, I'm, I'm all for it. Oh, absolutely. I agree. I mean, you know, humans are social creatures and they're creatures that sort of create a, a narrative within their head. They, everybody has a worldview of Weltanschauung in which they sort of perceive and organize both what they see in the world and what they want to do with themselves and how they view their own place in the world, their own identity. And what's presented in mainstream mass culture is so antithetical to what it means to be a human that there needs to be, you know, at least an ideology because there's plenty of people, good people, honest people who are either ill-equipped or simply not interested that aren't really thinking about these things, but are it, extremely damaged by them young women i think is probably the best example of that like it it shouldn't be their responsibility to have read you know the entire (laughs) catalog of continental and analytical philosophy to sort of understand what's been presented to them in in the ways that it's wrong right like they shouldn't have like it's a failure of society and frankly it's a failure on us in, in an extent to an extent that there isn't a ideology that they can sort of intuitively intuitively grasp, see, and have good, healthy, fulfilling lives from, right? Like that's, it's almost a duty. It's a, it's a, it's a grave duty of ours to create something like that because if we don't, so many people 
are going to suffer dearly and, and have really tragic, unfulfilling, and miserable lives if the only thing presented to them is what is presented to them by mass media and by our, our current culture. So we have a very strong duty to sort of hammer this thing out. And it doesn't mean that, you know, it's something that must be adhered to dogmatically or that if there's people that have sort of criticisms of it or differing views that there's no way that we can work with them politically or ideologically or philosophically or, or anything of that nature. It just means that there needs to be something new that people can use that aren't so tied into this thing and can go about their lives happily and healthily. Like, you know, we, we have this responsibility because we can see how bad things are and we understand how bad things are to give people who are less equipped to do so the tools that they need to survive in this like crazy technological, you know, social up, socially up, upheaved uh, hellscape that we find ourselves all in. Yeah. And I feel like one of the the tools that you highlight and, you know, a lot of people in, in kind of the BAP space highlight is aesthetics. I mean, it's a, it's a very, um, it's not, appealing to that rational verbal capacity that we have where you have to just, you know, spell it out. It just appeals to to something kind of ineffable in everyone. And it's very easy to distinguish between beautiful and ugly. Every children can do it. Anyone can can have that feeling. So is that the the, the main lever we can pull? I think it's certainly one of the most potent level levers we can pull. I think you know aesthetics the, the nature of beauty, beauty and truth, particularly those two things, has such a powerful impact in their essence that we need to utilize those things uh, to their utmost. And I think that our ideas, like they encapsulate beauty, right? If you look at what people on the left, if you look at what mainstream society sees, like they sort of have this instinctual aversion to actual beauty and health and that sort of thing and when you present beauty as a good unto itself that influences a lot of people like myself included like some of the things that were most impactful for my political development weren't necessarily really good arguments or like verbal you know persuasive essays or anything of that nature books it was images. It was it was images and videos and music that sort of presented a higher ideal to, to strive towards. And I think that's very true of so many young people today, particularly young men, from my perspective. Like it's not necessarily these well-crafted arguments that are persuading people. It's this idea that you know something can look good and cool in a world where everything is ugly and boring. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, there's also kind of, I feel like, I guess, I guess if you're Nietzsche and you just call this like resentment or something, it's, uh, you know, the fact that even the left can see that these, these things are good and cool and, and, and wonderful. And they kind of reflexively call them fascist. You know, you see a, a picture of a, whatever, good looking dude. And it's like, you know, it's, it kind of spins upon upon them and it's just you know it consumes them 
Yeah, the inherent fascism of bodybuilding, right? Yeah, exactly. So. Yeah, it's it's, and that's something that I think BAP particularly is done a lot of work and is is really good at is using aesthetics to demonstrate just how sick and wrong everyone that goes along with mainstream society is. Right, like this idea that everything has to be level that there are no higher ideals or higher forms of life or a, a way to sort of transcend the, the mere human into something greater and the idea that you know you can perfect something that you, you can perfect yourself you can perfect your people you can perfect uh, you know society and, and the world and you know nature itself right this idea that we sort of exist as sentient creatures of, of gardeners right like you you want to preserve the most beautiful flower in your garden you want to see that flourish you know you, you pick out the weeds you you do things that uh, strive to this sort of higher ideal of beauty and, and to the extent that you ever actually reach that perfection is, is probably unlikely but the idea of just striving towards it of, of seeing that there are better and worse things and it's better to strive towards what's good and better and beautiful uh, is sort of like the essence of i think like a lot of the people that I have interacted with and what I think should be at least a pretty significant component of whatever sort of ideology emerges to unite uh, all the different cliques and all and the whole of the dissident right is this idea of, of higher ideals and, and to what degree that's like structured by like a belief in a higher power or a belief that there are transcend transcendental truths and, and truly metaphysical hierarchy beyond just social hierarchy i think that's that needs to be a part of it because i think that's truer to reality and meta reality than any other alternative yeah and that and that kind of uh makes me think about the the other main schism that's happening between these the the, the major factions i think it's kind of the the question uh about family you know what role in the hierarchy should family play? Because I feel like a lot of people, just because of the chaos of the modern world, and I mean, I myself included, find uh, purpose and solace and kind of the construction of an almost like alternate world in in family and, you know, and having children and just building this thing separately and for oneself and to just kind of try to, you know, just just be... Um, in communion with with someone else, you know, husband, the the whole thing, you know, even mm-hmm. extended family. And I know this, you know, if you in in kind of vitalist circles, this is uh, you know considered part of a longhouse thinking. <laughs> and I guess there are ways to look at this, and it's not you know all black and white. I know, I know, but um, I can I can also see that. I mean, as as a man, I think it's it's a it's a tough. Um, I don't know. It's it's a tough road to walk because if you let yourself be consumed by that, you know, there's there's just something unmanly if you just give yourself over to the household and you know to that. But at the same time, there's you know, I don't think everyone can be like 
I don't know, a pirate on the high sea or, you know, a world famous, you know, spy or poet or whatever. I'm sure people can try, you know, this is kind of the, the UBI dream that everyone can become a, you know, Picasso, but uh, it's, um, yeah, I, I just think that for, for a lot of people, this type of dedication is valuable. It's useful. And I think it's leads to a fulfilling life. So I don't know. What's, what's your take on that? Well, I think it sort of boils down, particularly for men, is the, the way in which you orient yourself from the very beginning, from the very outset, and the way that you sort of intend to take part in not just having a family, but like broader society. And I think the issue for, let's say, vitalists when it comes to this argument that family life is like, the be all end all is that so much of it is like a concession to societal pressure, right? It's like, Oh, well you can't do this. You can't do that. You can't think this, or you can't say that or believe any of these other ideas because of the social pressure put on by, you know, your wife or by your extended family or your mother's in law, mother-in-law, like all, all this stuff is this sort of way of neutering a, male vitalistic spirit and tempering it to the service of you know the longhouse would be the the colloquial term to use but essentially the problem is when men are sort of presented to only have a purpose as subservient to this this broader sort of familial idea and all sort of aspirations of youth and vitalism and exertion of, of will to power and that sort of thing have to be subsumed to the greater communal good that, that starts with a family. Now, the, the inverse way to look at that, that I think is in line with sort of a vitalistic perspective is that if you perceive family as, like I said earlier, like a garden, this thing to cultivate, to grow, to make beautiful, to make healthy, and to improve not just yourself, but the components of it within, to have a truly like patriarchal perspective of it, not that you have you know unlimited power or control or exertion over your family, but that you view it as a responsibility to to make your wife and your children and then your extended family as as good as they can be to to reach their maximum potential. It's this idea of again of transcending and, and striving for the better and the good, and not just simply succumbing to uh, whatever might be convenient or comfortable for uh, the family or, or the longhouse or the communal structure, whatever it may be. And I think that's one of the differences that you sort of see in Western European cultures, particularly like uh, Northern European cultures versus the rest of the world where everyone is part of this big extended family and like the aunts and the uncles and the grandparents and the great uncles, and all, they all live together and everything is is for the good of the communal structure. Whereas and you know, there's the the, the Hajnal line. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but yeah, it's it's that sort of idea that you know the small sort of nuclear family as an independent unit that navigates its way through the world, uh, and to the degree that it interacts with society and all that, there's still this aspiration of like personal growth and personal uh, higher ideas to strive towards. So it's it's not necessarily that. The way that these things are expressed, whether they are through family or, or whatever the circumstances may be, 
are bad in and of themselves. It's the initial outset. It's, it's how you perceive them and how you operate within that framework. It, it really comes down to a, a difference in worldview and a difference in perspective. Like that's the fundamental issue. It's not the manifestations of that down the line. Uh, and I think there's a lot of, you know, disingenuous argumentation past one another in that nature. It's like, oh, family's good or family's bad. It's not that family is anything. It's that what you do with family and how you perceive yourself within a family and, and what your goals are and, and, and how you orient, orientate yourself in that, that is the real fundamental difference and the real fundamental disagreement. Yeah, and I think there's an, another element here that I feel that kind of most of this discourse uh, ignores. It's just age. I feel like one of the the main alienations of of the way we live now is this weird, ageless, you know, this aspiration towards perpetual adolescence and the idea that you know there is just one phase. Because I mean, this this kind of vitalism that you know most people speak about is pretty much, you know, kind of the, the, the warrior explorer phase of, of one's life, which is not eternal, um, which does tend to conclude, let's say, mid to, to late 30s. And then the, the next half of the life, you know, it's kind of like with, with women, you got your maiden mother crone phases, and they've just been wiped out for, you know, perpetual maidenhood, looking like some weird, you know, Madonna cyborg and, and just never, never giving up on, um, on that, yeah, the desirable phase of life and just pretending that, you know, getting old never happens. And I guess, you know, just by the nature of, of getting old, you lose your vitalism. You know, it, there is something sad, uh, you know, there's something very sad about the 40-year-old woman in the club, but there's also something sad about, let's say, the 50-year-old man at the club. You know, mm -hmm. there's Absolutely. something about someone not recognizing what's going on, you know, cluelessness about their role in life. And I feel like family is a phase in men's life and it should be a phase in men's life, but you know, it might not be as an, an, as early a phase as in women's. Well, I certainly think, I mean, absolutely. You're, you're so true about that. And what I think particularly sort of vitalism as it's emerged out of the dissident right is that these phases that people transition through in the course of their life, it's not really fixed at a certain age. It's not like you hit 18, suddenly you're adult or that sort of thing. It, it has to do with your development as a human being and reaching fulfillment in each of those stages. So I think really what a lot of the problem is in modern society is not necessarily that it's an overfixation just on a, a youthful phase or like the maiden stage or as like the, the young man stage as you know, eternal adolescence is that it's such a prison of society that no one's getting any sort of a fulfillment for that stage. So they're stuck there because they never actually feel like they got to have their youth because there's, they're so sort of entrenched within society as it is. And, and there's so many things that are like natural expressions of, you know, a youthful phase of your life that are denied and like, you know, dismissed and, or, you know, pathos, pathos psychology uh, like looked at from a perspective of like oh this is like toxic masculinity or et cetera et cetera like so many people are unfulfilled that they're they're unable to advance to the later stages of their life because they're still chasing that fulfillment that they were denied in their youth and so what the sort of vitalists 
try to do, particularly for young men, is like one, explain these instincts that they have in, in their youth and and to sort of say, hey, you know, it's it's actually okay to like want to like go out in the woods and, and explore and, and have this uh, urge to conquer, so to speak, right? You know, put cities to the fire. Like that's that's actually a normal and healthy urge for a young man. It's not sick. It's not toxic. And unfortunately, you find yourself in a world where that's denied to you. It's not wrong to like seek brotherhood and to seek the manor bund and that sort of thing. No, actually, like that's should be in a healthy society a key component of your youth. And the reason so many people today are like stuck in that adolescence is because they've been totally denied what it means to be uh, young and they're unable to advance. Like, you know. I mean, I, I can't say personally from experience, but I'm sure like like the maiden phase of life, there's so many women that are like stuck at the club way past their youth, uh, sort of, you know, hopping from men to men and and, and not finding fulma- fulfillment because they have been presented a false idea of what maidenhood really is. And what they are presented is totally unfulfilling. So they they keep trying it over and over again. You know, the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again hoping for other results and uh, they're just not presented, you know, the truth to them, you know, and they're not given a actual explanation to their own instincts and the way that nature has sort of evolved us to behave at these different phases of our life. Yeah. And I think it's, it's also kind of what, what status shapes, you know, women, women tend to be more agreeable. They tend to kind of move where the wind is going. And, um, I mean, everything that, that tells you in, in media, you know, the, the classes for teenage girls to, to tell them that, you know, their lives are going to get ruined if they, if they get pregnant. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, that's not a lesson you forget two years later where it suddenly turns into a blessing. Um, you know, it's, uh, hidden prints and it's not just you know it's not what you learn in school it's what you learn from everywhere mm-hmm. no it's all just juno it's all just you know it's it's all the the end of the world if you if you have uh if you have a baby you know families giving up on your dreams you know no one really tells you exactly um you know what you should be dreaming just that the dreams will will come to you and then you know that you know, making partner at the law firm or something, something like that should be the dream. Right. Being like a surgeon or something like that. Uh, it's, it's, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a strange thing. Like I, most, most women I know, um, have a, have a dreamless sleep in the sense, and they're very concerned, you know, slowly through their twenties that the dreams do not appear. And, you know, they're, well, where's the calling, you know, mm-hmm. why am I not called to become whatever biochemist or an astronaut? And, um, yeah, it's just, it, it rarely comes and they just have a job and that job sucks. <laughs> so. yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that's part of the problem with what society has become is that I think particularly for women, ironically enough, you know, it's champions like this feminist ideal, but it's the least feminine empowering thing I could imagine because it totally alienates women from like what most of them would actually find fulfillment in. And it's not that to say that women can't, you know, be, you know, powerful or, or you know, successful in these so-called traditional realms of men, but it's that everyone has to fit into that. That's obviously not true. And so many women get stuck in that and are, are sold that idea and are 
having empty, unfulfilling lives because of it. Whereas if there was like a truly natural and empathetic impulse in society to give women happiness and give women fulfillment, there would be a much more natalist perspective, right? Like family and motherhood and that sort of thing. And like in my experience, all the women I know, like that's really where they found their happiness. And it's not that they can't have like career or, or social aspirations, but it's definitely the thing that gives them the most meaning in their life. And I think that it's part of the sickness of society that it, it, it's viewed as this sort of life ending circumstance. If, if you have children, especially if you're young, if you have children, because for a lot of people and, and men included, right? This isn't just for women. There's certainly plenty of men who I think really radically reorient their lives and find themselves better for it when they have children, when they start families. Uh, and it manifests different for men, but it's the same sort of natural Im- impulse to, you know, have children and have a family. Like we have evolved millions of years. I mean, before we were even humans, right? Like we had these structures in place and we had these sort of natural manifestations of uh, family life and, and of community and of connectivity in that. And today's society is a total inversion of that. And that just causes so, so much pain and suffering that it's, you know, <laughs> we really got to do something about it. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, uh, a lot of people kind of in the more trad space tend to go the other way. I mean, you've, you've talked about this before, but it's just like, uh, you know, the kind of community worship. And I also see that, you know, it's, it's a bit of a problem as well. Cause I mean, I was just looking at some, some stats on, you know, what the, the, the likeliest way of, um, childhood sexual abuse for your daughter is if there is a, um, a young male cousin in the home, there's a study and I think it was in Latino families, some, some mm-hmm. South American thing. It was just like somewhere in like the mid 20% of, of, you know, your, your daughter's getting raped if there's like a, a teenage cousin in the home, you know, and this is like, you know, multi-generational families, which is yeah. so, such a cool thing to, to desire. Um, you know, it's, there is a hopefully a happy middle with this stuff as well. Cause you know, the, the commune is is the stuff of nightmares for a reason. You know, there are yeah. many ways in which, um, you know, the dynamics of, of living together with many people, many generations, many um, degrees of relatedness can yeah. <laughs> lead to a lot of uh, shit. <laughs> sure. I mean, I mean, you just have to look at places in the world where that is the norm, right? Like, I, I can't imagine it would be, I, I certainly won't, wouldn't want to raise my daughter in a tradition traditional indian or pakistani home right like that's horrific i can, I can only imagine I'd, I'd prefer not to because it's, it's actually disturbing but yeah like that's one of the things that i think there's such a lack of nuance when it comes to these debates is that there needs to be a middle ground there needs to be an understanding between like what is the best solution what is the best case for it particularly for like our people like what have we necessarily evolved to be best at and evolved to you know, structure ourselves as like Western European civilization is, is so much different from so many others and so much healthier and, and, and so much was achieved when those sort of traditions were respected and understood and internalized. And the idea that we have to sort of conform to 
what might be considered a more traditional structure is uh, I think ignorant and naive because you have to really examine like how those things manifest. Uh, and like you mentioned, like usually it doesn't manifest too well when it's like these multi-generational homes where everybody's, you know, sharing a floor space together. I think that's, there needs to be certainly for, you know, Western Europeans, like the idea that you have a sense of individualism and you have a sense of like privacy and, and your own sort of space that you're the master of it is like almost instinctual, right? Like it, it actually has a huge component for mental health and, and all other forms of health, physical and otherwise. And when that's denied or when that's asserted as like, you know, too individualistic or too liberal or, or whatever you too, too uh, poisoned by the enlightenment, it's uh, not for the better. Yeah, I mean, you can you can already tell this type of stuff just from you know what the economists call revealed preference. You know, most people would like to live alone. Like I've had a phase mm-hmm. where you know I was living in a big city and I had housemates and it was okay, but you know, every everyone in that house is kind of you know trying their best to make enough money to live alone uh, because you know it, it is it is irritating. You kind of have to cater to other people's preferences. You know, mm-hmm. who cleans? There's a lot of there's a lot of social negotiating to do. But then on the other end, if you end up living alone in your little concrete box in the city, you end up going a little bit kooky if you're not, you know, completely aspy or whatever and you, sure. you prefer it. Uh, but for most people, that's even more of an extreme. So it's somewhere between the uh, nosy housemate and, you know, total, you know, uh, yeah, isolation. Uh, there, That's kind of where it is. And I, I feel like, at least for me, it's just, you know, Living with family, with people you love, um, you know, the with um, with extended family relatively close by in twenty minute driving distance, and with my nuclear family in the house, I think that's the sweet spot for me. I guess mm-hmm. that's my my Central European genes shining through. <laughs> yeah. I've got a combination from uh, inside and outside the the high line, so. I, um, I've got, I don't know, I guess a little bit more long house than most, sure. but yeah, it's, um, not, I mean, it doesn't seem like too much. I mean, I think that's how a lot of, you know, Western, Western European society and, and nations have oriented themselves. That's sort of like what arises organically when there aren't these massive systems of propaganda and social pressure in place to, alienate people and to sort of try and get them to fit in this, you know, world economic forum idea of what society should order, order itself as, as everyone being these perfect individualistic consumers and laborers and producers. Uh, that's inorganic and it's forced and it's obviously forced and it's, everyone has to be indoctrinated from like the earliest part, part of their youth throughout the entirety of their life to sort of believe it. Whereas if you sort of take your hands off, and you let things emerge organically, that's that's how they would. And you look at societies as they've emerged throughout history, uh, and they tend to sort of organize themselves as the nature of their people dictate. Uh, you don't need to really force it. You just have to let things sort of return to their natural state. Yeah, I mean, if you if you look at any big city, you've got your your little Karachi, little you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> little Bucharest, and stuff like that. 
pretty pretty accurate, I would say. You know, the spontaneous order is, is you know, incredible sometimes. <laughs> Just perfect rendition of the 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 source uh, of the place of origin. So it's uh, it's it's really interesting. Then yeah, that's that's the truth. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the most persuasive things about this thing of ours is that just the simple assertions like, hey, maybe nature's good. You know, maybe maybe nature has a way of figuring itself out and there doesn't need to be this overwhelming system of control and propaganda and, and organization that uh, dictates, oh, this is actually what we should be as humans. This, this sort of cult of progress that exists that we have to sort of transcend our parochial you know natural ways into this uh, cybernetic sort of <laughs> like totally inhuman way of living our lives uh, you know, maybe that's not so good you know maybe that isn't actually progress in fact maybe that's that's a decline into something much darker than uh, any sort of ideal would put itself as uh, you know what's good yeah, yeah, I I tend to be kind of a a bit more kind of Nick Nick Landian on on this type of stuff. It does feel to me that there are certain forces that have been put in motion by you know just some something as simple as you know labor saving devices, you know printing press, uh, widespread literacy, just like immense forces that drag ideology with themselves and then you kind of have these you know ideal ideologies blooming up between these forces and explaining why things are happening but in the end it's just like it's, it's a massive forces I'm not saying that they're you know unstoppable like ideology itself is a, is a huge force and i think that's kind of the the, the game we're playing and i i am hopeful for it because it's you know benefited me immensely but just like on the on the level of of, of whole societies i mean what you see with like with just the internet and things like that, these these are just insanely disruptive uh, forces, and it's it's very hard to think you know think of of anything ideological without including you know without thinking about you know how how the internet has reshaped the minds of people, just you know just how we engage with with anything. And I mean, the fact that I even speak English like this and we're talking over this strange medium and I even know about you and we think about the same thing, we found each other. There's so many little weird, weird things, which, you know, I very much appreciate this, but there are many other things like this um, that maybe are not so evident and they're kind of gnawing away at my humanity every day. Certainly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, our mutual friend, Catherine D, she's spoken a lot about like the effects that the internet has had on people and, and the way that it's shaped uh, both culture in general and the way that it impacts individuals. And I think she's done a lot of really good work on that. And I, I, you know, I recommend everyone listening go check her stuff out. But I do think from a very broad timeline perspective, the sort of change that mankind has been forced to endure in such a blink of, you know, a blink of an eye just in such a small time frame we've gone from how we've existed for the majority of our time on this planet to a totally alien environment with massive forces that are influencing our psyches that are poisoning our bodies that are having all these crazy effects on us and one of the curious things about humanity is our adaptability how easily we're able to 
overcome new environments and, and create ways of surviving in what would have been inhospitable conditions for us uh, without our ability to adapt. And I think that's one of the good things about this sphere and about people that have you know, sort of analyzed this in depth is the understanding that you know maybe we're adapting in ways to these things that aren't good. Maybe there are ways that we can mitigate that effect. Maybe there are some things that we need to critically examine and defend against and protect ourselves against rather than just letting you know technology or letting uh, these broader forces these rapidly advancing changing forces uh, influence us without any sort of examination or any sort of control or defense against yeah and and hopefully you know create some some other generations just for us to keep to keep playing this game because that's i think that's the biggest thing that you know the biggest, um, the biggest line of disincentives is for is for having children. You're really just looking around at people, you know, that I know, like even even people that I know from Romania. And I went to say maybe a more swanky high school, so I get you know people who are more careerist and stuff. But almost none of my high school girlfriends have children, and I'm 34, so it's not going to happen probably. So it's um yeah I don't know it's a it's a weird thing. And obviously uh, even a generation before that, this just wasn't, wasn't the case. And this is Romanian. We're kind of, you know, behind on many things, but <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> we're not behind on, on some of these things and it's coming, you know, there's still a huge like rural urban divide, but everything's urbanizing. Even the, even the villages are urbanizing. So. Sure. I mean, it's a global problem, right? But it seems yeah. particularly acute in the West, in Europe and in America. Uh, because a lot of the things that are driving that, you know, originated here. And I think it, it's such a hard problem to tackle. And I don't have like a one size fits all solution for it. I'd, I'd like to see it emerge out of this sphere, but I still think there's a lot of work that needs to be done on, you know, critically examining a solution to this. And I, a lot of people kind of get blackpilled about it, right? Like they get very, despondent and they think oh well it's it's over and like how do we solve these insurmountable problems and i've always had a very different perspective that way i think it's like this the fact that we can identify them as problems at all is one a good thing and two i think we really are like pressed by duty to sort of solve them like we we simply can't you know go down without a fight i think and there's a lot of people that are doing a lot of good work in terms of breaking the problem down and, and seeing what solutions and trying different solutions to fix this sort of thing. And I, I have hope that we're, we'll reach that because there's certainly more than enough intelligent and effective people in this sphere alone that we can solve these problems. And it's just a matter of like, this is my forte, particularly when it comes to like politics and, and other things and just uh, rhetoric and ideology is like the strategy of it. Like what can be practical? What can be pragmatic? And what are the steps that we need to take to at least put ourselves in positions of power that we can actually have an influence and we can put these ideas into effect and we can actually shape society in a way that is uh, much better than its current path. And yeah, I think, you know, certainly the, all the components are there, right? There are more than enough people in this, this sphere of ours that if properly organized in, in whatever form that takes, or if at least, you know, on enough of the same page 
that we can work together and get this thing solved that we could do it and it's just a matter of, of doing it right doing it smart and being aware of the situation the circumstances that are arrayed against us yeah and in in a way sadly the the, the visible decline of everything else is kind of working in our favor because you know people are feeling this thing i mean materially sure obviously things are going to shit but um, they're also very much have already gone to shit spiritually. People, people are really aimless. They really have all sorts of, you know, issues of, of finding meaning. And, and um, they, this is, I think, um, growing in status, the, the stuff that goes on in the space. You know, people tend to complain about the fact that, oh, you know, there's a a semi-puff piece in Vanity Fair. There's, I mean, the fact that, you know, the space is even acknowledged and there's a lot of, you know, unstable stuff that goes on in the space. And still, you know, there's a bit of friendly reception, you know. I'm, I'm sure there's partly containment, partly all sorts of other things, but there's there's a certain gleam of importance coming off of these ideas just because it's um, they are useful and beautiful and good in many ways and people are noticing and I'm I'm happy that that's that's the case. I don't think it's going to work any other way. I feel like if if people see that okay, this is this is the direction that you know enough high status comes from, then things can change in a massive way in quite a short time. Um, because you know, yeah, like you said, aesthetics is an important thing. You know, aesthetics we we people cover aesthetics quite well in this space and. Um, you know, it's just, this is where, this is where the beautiful lives. Um, even if it's, you know, sometimes hard to look at with, uh, you know, 2022 goggles. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is, you know, if you have the courage to, to look at it, then, you know, there's a lot of, um, a lot of benefit to it. Yeah. This is something that I discussed at length with Patrick Casey on the show that I just recorded with him. Uh, and, and he's a great guest. He could, I think you would, you know, get a lot of having a conversation with with him, uh, I, Ooh, yeah, I he was him. recommended recently. I, I didn't know about Patrick uh, until yeah, he's a he's a good guy. I've known him for years, and uh, we had this discussion. It's like, what can we do as the dissonant right? Like, what is our strengths, and what can be done? And there's a lot of people in this space that sort of want quick fixes now. They want to, you know, one small trick to taking over society immediately, and uh, that's just not the case. But when you actually examine our strengths and you look at where we've come. In just the last six years, uh, it's actually quite impressive, and I think it's it's really good. And what we are fundamentally is a rhetorical cultural space. Our influence is in the realm of the discourse. It's in the realm of discussion. It's in the realm of presenting ideas and influencing people and persuading people. There was a thread that I I used as an example on Patrick's space that I'll use again, but. He has this uh, account that follows his his stuff. Uh, it's a Restoring Order fan account restore, at Restoring Order USA. And he had a thread that examined Kanye West's personal trainer. And it, delved, uh, it dove deep into his background and sort of the really weird, suspicious things that he'd been, uh, you know, a part of and it, the weird behaviors he's, he's exhibited, the, the trainer that is. And the the strange connections that this guy has seemed to have, and it was it was a decently long thread. It had a lot of evidence to it. It had a lot of data points, and it wasn't too extreme. It didn't say anything that was like too uncouth, but it was a really 
you know, good examination of an event that occurred in, you know, current events, right? And that thread got, you know, like something like 1,500 or 15,000 retweets, like 50,000 likes or something like that. And it was so influential that Tucker on Fox News basically covered the thread itself. He didn't directly link to it, but all the information presented in that thread was, you know, given on Tucker's show, you know, on Fox News, like the largest cable news network in America. So, yeah, our ideas can actually reach a pretty large audience and we can have a very significantly impactful uh, effect on society and on culture uh, if we play to our strengths in that regard. And we, we don't try and think like, oh, well, now we've got to go and march in the streets and and if we get the right uniform, we can you know, take control. Like that's, that's not how this works. We are a, a, a commentary force. And when we do that well, like, yeah, we have like significant reach and impact and people sort of get persuaded to our ideas and, and very influential people, uh, high status individuals and, and powerful people who are sympathetic to us or who maybe have the same views or at least are curious, certainly dissatisfied with the current state of things. They see us, and I think they are deeply persuaded by that. And that's sort of the means in which we can move forward. And as long as we sort of maintain the quality that we have when it comes to discussing ideas and being able to be persuasive and, and present rhetoric and dissect current events through the lens of truth and beauty, that will always be influential. And so I, I, I am hopeful for this. I know that some of uh, Tucker's producers are, are keeping an eye on uh, on the, the space. And uh, I think uh, Blake Masters was uh, was using um, some some clip about Blake Masters had a clip from my podcast. And um, also some attack ads for Blake Masters had a clip from my podcast. But I guess mm-hmm. you know, people are people are paying attention to to this stuff. So I think that's 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 really good and very very positive in some ways and yeah i like i said the the, the best chance for any of the stuff getting traction is for uh, you know powerful enough counter elite to think this stuff is cool and and good and beautiful and to integrate it into their worldview and to you know just just push things along in, in that way um before I move on to the complete end of the show, I want to ask you the question that everyone gets, the subversive thinker question. Uh, if you have a recommendation for my listeners, someone, you know, might be well-known, unknown, just that you think is underrated and people should should check out or read more of or just find out about. Well, I don't know if underrated would be the term because he's quite popular, but I know for myself personally and, and many, many others like BAP, Bronze Age Pervert, in his book, Bronze Age Mindset, had such a significant impact on me and, and sort of speaking to things that I've always instinctively knew but couldn't articulate well or, or understand perfectly. And particularly for young men or, or really any, any man that finds himself in this world uh, with questions unanswered and with instincts uh, unvalidated look into his work. I think his view of the world, his perspective on reality, on, on how we should orientate ourselves and and what the ideals we should really champion are, I think his are, are, are really like the the most cogent and the most well thought out and, and honestly the most influential just for myself personally. So if anyone would care to understand the world better that has sort of the same instincts that I've 
outlined thus far in the show, check out Bronze Age Pervert. Yeah, I I second that. I think Bronze Age Pervert, especially for men. I mean, I I'm not saying that I can completely understand the the BAP perspective because I'm just not I've phenotypically equipped to to understand it. But uh, I. I can see how he's at least one of the co-creators of the space that I'm in. And, you know, that's an incredible thing. And I, yeah, I respect that. And I think it's, it's great. And I love Bronze Age Mindset. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful book. And every time I, I, I go back and read it, I, I find something new, some, some new nugget of <laughs> insanity <laughs> that I think is, is excellent. So, yeah, definitely, definitely check that out. Um, is there anything that people should read of yours? I know you're on Twitter. People just, just go to at uh, Um and any articles in weird magazines? Uh, no, I, I did have an article published in Man's World, a raw nationalist uh, piece, or his magazine uh, titled Pursuit of Power in, in regards with some of the things that I sort of briefly mentioned here at the end of the show, uh, ways that we can move forward, sort of a strategy piece. But other than that, no, just check my Twitter out. Uh, I, I've been on a few shows. I think I've had some pretty good discussions. I've been, like I mentioned, with Pat Casey. I've been on uh, Geo, at Giant Geo on Twitter. I've been on his show. Uh, and I've been on a few others. Scott Greer's podcast, Highly Respected. And, and then, of course, BAP's podcast, uh, Caribbean Rhythm. So I've been on a few shows. But in terms of my own you know, personal shilling, I've got, I ain't got too much. Uh, I'm just more interested in good discussion. So my DMs are open. If anyone has any questions about some of the things I said, uh, feel free to ask me. But other than that, yeah, just check out my Twitter. Excellent. Yeah, please do. And yeah, this was really great. And yeah, thank you so much for coming on. It was a pleasure being here. Thank you very much, Alex. My name is Alex Kashuta, and this is the Subversive Podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to some of the most interesting people on the heterodox to heretic spectrum. Everyone from iconoclast philosophers to rogue scientists to real post-BuzzFeed journalists and our true intellectual elite, Twitter anonymous accounts. In short, they're quite subversive. Enjoy. Enjoy.